Let's hear some of that movie chat. Credits roll by and I tip my hat. Credits roll by, wanna know more right away. Let's have some of that movie chat. Credits roll by, tell me who did that. Life in the credits is where I wanna play. Welcome to Life in the Credits. This is the show where we learn about entertainment by chatting with people who work in the industry. I'm Susan. And I'm Ben. And here we're discussing the film A Thousand Clowns. And joining us today is our special guest, writer and performer Brian Stack. Welcome, Brian. Hey, Brian. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Brian, we are so excited to talk to you today. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do? Well, I'm a writer at The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. do some performing on there and some voiceover stuff too, but... uh, my main job is a is a writer, and we work on the the monologue, but we also work on other bits, you know, that might happen during the course of the show, or maybe something to do with the guests. It really depends. But um, yeah, that that's uh, that's what I'm doing currently. That's my main main job. Awesome. <laughs> that's fantastic. What are some uh, shows you've worked on in the past, or projects you've worked on in the past, TV or otherwise? Well, uh, before I worked at started working at The Late Show in 2015. Uh, for 18 years, I worked with Conan, first at The Late Night Show, which was in uh, Rockefeller Center for from 1997 to 2009. And then we moved out to LA when Conan took went out there to do The Tonight Show, which unfortunately uh, didn't last too long, yeah. but, uh, <laughs> right. we, as you know. And then uh, we, we went it over to the TBS show on the Warner Brothers lot for about, I was there for about uh, five and a half years. Working at Kona was my first TV job. I got that in 1997. And before that, I was in the Chicago improv community, which I know you're both yeah. very well acquainted with. And um, Absolutely. And I'm from Chicago. And I always I always admired people I knew that moved there to do improv. Yeah. And I don't know if I would have had the guts to do that. I was lucky enough to be a Chicagoan. And right. so when, mm-hmm. I, when I finished school... I like to think I might have had the guts to move to like Cleveland or Portland if that's where the improv scene was, like right. the big hub. But um, I don't know if I would have had the guts to do that. So I always admired my friends who moved there from Massachusetts yeah. or Missouri or whatever, <laughs> you know. Yeah, it's a big leap because we had some friends who were like, yeah, we just moved here to go to Second City, go through the program and take the classes. It's pretty cool. Yeah, it is very cool. I think that's great. Yeah, and working on both, you know, Conan O'Brien's show and Stephen Colbert, I mean, those are such funny shows. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they're just, and they put out so much content. So what is it like to, to work on a show or projects like those? Well, uh, I feel very lucky that, first and foremost, to that I get to work with so many really genuinely, it's going to sound Pollyanna-ish, but really <laughs> genuinely nice, good people, you know, that, that really love what they do and at both shows, and I don't take it for granted because I've heard from a lot of people that have worked places that felt very toxic or uh, unsupportive or um, with people that were that where there was a lot of infighting and stuff. And I, working for Conan and working for Steven, um, I think that the tone gets set from the top, you know, at, at yeah. shows I've noticed. Like, even at other shows where I, I've done little one or two or three days of work, I've noticed that the tone really does get set from the top and Steven and Conan are, are good people, you know, who kind of set a tone of being, you know, respectful. They want everyone to, you know, to work hard and do the best job they can, but they set a tone of trying to make it fun and everybody being respectful of each other. You know, I remember hearing a, a friend of mine who worked on scrubs years ago, uh, said that Bill Lawrence had a no asshole rule. 
and uh, <laughs> that was where it's like you're not allowed to be an asshole if you're on the crew if you're on the cast or you're out you know like oh, that's yeah. awesome. life's too short to have that and yeah at conan and steven's show there's never been an explicit no asshole rule but mm -hmm. there might as well be because that's how it seems to run yeah you know, yeah totally genuinely very nice i feel very lucky to work with so many nice people yeah even steven is i've known steven since the old chicago improv days and he's he's always someone that he's never really changed he's always been a very kind nice hilarious smart guy you know who's just he really is the same guy he was in in chicago improv basements he's just much more successful <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome so speaking of the chicago improv days can you tell us more about your background you know i didn't really have the guts to try performing when i was younger i was always a huge comedy fan mm -hmm. you know I, I loved it and i i would watch it and i even before this is show will make me seem really old, but I used before we even had a VCR, you know, the where we could record stuff in terms of video. I would audio cassette tape shows like Faulty Towers and Monty Python. Oh yeah, those yeah. are great on the actual audio cassette in front of the TV, you know. And um, so when I was a kid, I would sometimes have these episodes memorized in my head, and it was all audio. So I grew up loving comedy, but. When, like, and I, when I went to Indiana University, Mick Napier, who I'm sure you know from yeah. the Chicago Improv scene, he actually was at IU when I was there. Oh, cool. Year, he was a year older than me, and he lived on my dorm floor, and um, he had an improv group that I didn't have the guts to audition for, but I used to go see them, and yeah. I fell totally in love with it from afar, but I, I was like, oh, that looks so fun. I'm too scared to try it, but that looks so fun. And then Mick told me about Improv Olympic, which is now called mm -hmm. IO. Right. And uh, I'm so grateful to him for that because back then it was so underground and so small. There were so few people doing it that you all, you really needed someone to tell you about it. Yeah. Uh, no, you weren't going to hear about it, you know, through seeing posters or seeing promotion mm -hmm. or anything. So the summer of 86, when I finished uh, at IU, I took a beginner class at IO uh, with Sharna Halpern and fell so in love with it. But I had already committed to going to grad school at University of Wisconsin that fall. And I was like, oh, I just found this thing I love and I don't want to give it up. But I had committed to going to grad school. So I was like, okay, I'm going to go and I'll see how it goes. And then by sheer luck, there was this little improv theater in Madison called The Ark. Oh, awesome. By sheer luck that that was there. And that's where I did my first performing. I, I, I finally worked up the nerve to audition. Yeah. And uh that was a wonderful little place. It's a laundromat now, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> it was just a, a lovely little theater. And um, the late, great Chris Farley was actually in my first group. Oh, my gosh. That's wild. He was from Madison. And yeah. he, he had just finished at Marquette and was back home working at his dad's oil company. And he, he too, found out there was this little improv theater. And, and it, was, he, it was very obvious, even at that early stage, that he was so such a special talent and yeah. even as a total beginner everyone recognized it you know I was just like he left for Chicago about a year before I did to go back home to my hometown but when I finished grad school in 88 I um, went back to my hometown of Chicago and that's when I started taking classes at Second City yeah. taking classes at IO getting on an IO team and I worked in an ad agency for a few years as my day job mm -hmm. then I got hired at Second City in 92 so it was a few years of just doing it at night, improv at night, just for fun and on weekends. Yeah. Right. You know, just as, and then having my day job. And then um, I worked at Second City for 
about four years and before getting hired at, at Late Night with Conan in okay. 97. And that was originally supposed to be a 13-week gig, and it became 18 years. Which is <laughs> really <laughs> snowballed. Weird. Yeah, it's very weird. So I was supposed to fill in for a writer who had broken his leg really badly. Uh, oh, poor Tommy Blacha, who, you know, one of the funniest guys I, I've ever met. But um, I came out to originally for 13 weeks. I got a little sublet, and I thought I was going back. And then luckily, it worked out that I ended up staying, and it became so much longer. But yeah. <laughs> always be grateful to that. And then... My family had been feeling a real pullback to New York from LA. We liked LA more than we thought we would, but we were feeling a pullback to New York and ended up coming. I reached out uh, and Steven said, if it's okay with Conan, we'd love to have you. And he was so, they were so nice and respectful about it with each other and their friends. So um, they were, they were uh, both wonderful about it. I'd always hoped to work with Steven at some point. I've always been one of his biggest fans and admired him so much. So, yeah. But I always loved working with Conan too. And, I'm just glad they were on such good terms. And- yeah. Yeah, totally. And you've been on the Conan show a lot, playing a lot of different yeah. characters and various sketches and bits and stuff like that. So talking about, you know, building up the courage to perform, how did you get the courage up to actually go on television? Well, it started very small. Like, I remember uh, one of the writers had asked me, why don't you come in as a doc? Like, it was kind of an extra part almost. Right. Like, But I think working at Second City and doing I.O., as you know, it's such great training for mm-hmm. um, what we ended up doing at late night because in many ways it felt like an extension of the improv community. Mm-hmm. Like I was working with a lot of people who had improv backgrounds, right. Conan included, and now you're know, working with Steven where, where everyone's kind of um, used to things going a little bit off the rails. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and you know it's going to be okay as long as uh-huh. you hold it. Like as long as you don't treat a mistake or something going wrong as a tragedy and more like treat it as a gift. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, this is fun if we embrace it and have right. fun. With it. So that that was such good training because not just for the collaborative nature of, of late night work, but also for the possibility of things going wrong. And so mm-hmm. I had always and it always felt and it still does at the like the Ed Sullivan Theater is larger than Studio Six A was for Conan, but they both feel like they both are really theaters. So it, it felt all that Chicago training we got was invaluable. Like I can't imagine how it was such good training because usually when you're doing a bit in studio six, a, or in the Ed Sullivan theater, there's a part of you that just forgets that it's being shot with a camera. You feel like you're doing it for the people in that room. Mm -hmm. Like you feel like you're, you're doing theater. Mm -hmm. And um, so that all that training in Chicago is why I think I was prepared to do it. You have a ton of characters you've done and they're all great. They're all like pretty unique. So what's your process for developing those characters? Like how do you get your ideas or do they just kind of pop up out of improvisation or just from talking in a writer's room? You know, it really depends. Sometimes they were almost accidental. Like the interrupter, for example, was Conan would often point out that a lot of the characters on our show would just interrupt the show. Yeah. <laughs> interrupt like he goes who's going to interrupt me today like just kind of joking at rehearsal yeah michael coleman another writer michael suggested a character that that's his sole purpose <laughs> so he suggested that i do it originally just as a quick new character kind of thing and then when we started bringing it back it turned into a, we we found out more about his life and how what a uh, disastrous life he had and all, the, <laughs> all these horrible details about him so that that came up almost as an observation about the show uh, the ghost crooner, for example, like Marty yeah. Kendall that I would do, that came from just 
I was thinking one day, wow, the Rockefeller Center has been around since 1930. So there were all these old radio singers that were there, like Bing Crosby. And I also remember hearing how Bing Crosby had this dark side, and, <laughs> which you'd never see in the movies. He's always like, hey, you're right. here, you know? So I thought, I started thinking, what if a, a singer like Bing had this dark side where he was kind of, and then it, it evolved into him, Artie Kendall being kind of this misogynist racist monster who uh, you know but 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 singing very happy-go-lucky right right yeah totally. I wanted to point out that he'd been murdered and I wasn't advocating anything he was mm -hmm. he was a monster even in his time you know like yes yes Frankenstein came up uh originally I think Brian McCann asked me to do play Frankenstein for a bit and I think my natural goofiness and and um awkwardness made him more like a little kind of like a big kid you know instead of like the yeah. frankenstein movie monster it was more like ah, right trying to <laughs> he was kind of a people-pleasing frankenstein like you know yes. or like my own personality coming through some of our favorite stuff was purely accidental for example like brian mccann a couple of his characters he put a fedex box on his head once at at a in a writer's meeting before it was starting and he started like blessing us like this and we're like oh fedex pope why not <laughs> so, and you know so that wasn't something you'd think of at your computer you know sitting there like right. trying to hammer away at an idea his guy with bulletproof legs just came from me pretending to shoot him in the leg before a writer's meeting and he started singing he had bulletproof legs so i shot him in the chest and he died <laughs> like oh just the legs are bulletproof so as you know if you're around the right people yeah. in improv or or anything else and you're bouncing ideas around that's a lot of times the best stuff and none of you would have thought of it individually on your right. own and that's one of my favorite things to this day is like if i'm working with steven like there's been a few times where i was doing the the god thing in the dome we would yeah. do this like animated god puppet and sometimes things would go a little bit wrong or off and and he really enjoys improvising himself so mm -hmm. we'll have fun with the fact that it went a little off or wrong yeah, yeah when when things go wrong it's very funny yeah to it's watch. usually funnier than yeah. <laughs> yeah, as long as you don't react like it's a disaster yeah. the audience enjoys watching you try mm -hmm. to make something out of it yeah they can watch you kind of drive the train off the tracks and then back on the tracks exactly <laughs> and they really, they really enjoy they really enjoy being part of that moment how long does it normally take to write a monologue or a sketch it really depends. We work in the morning and then the, there's the, usually the rewriting process happens after that. And sometimes with sketches, the, as you know, too, there's a Conan, especially things would sometimes incubate for a while. Like you might have an idea, like the crooner. I remember having it, the idea almost a year before I actually did it. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. It just kind of sat there and I didn't know exactly yeah. what point of view he was going to have. Yeah. The character sure. was gonna have. So sometimes they have to sit there and and incubate almost like I've heard songwriter friends of mine talk about that too. Like they'll write down a line, but they won't have the song. Yeah. The songwriting is a very mysterious process to me, but in a way they, they say it's very similar to, to any other form of writing where sometimes something you have to sit with it for a while. And other times think things will come really fast. As you know, sometimes like all your yeah. favorite ideas come and they just tumble out, but then other ones you have to kind of sit there. So some sketches, the idea comes in that day and, a couple of writers will go off and work on it literally that day and hammer it out and it goes on the show that day. Other times it'll kind of sit around for a few weeks or yeah. maybe uh, it won't get a chance to get read for a few weeks. And then, you know, if it's not super time sensitive, it really depends on the, the piece you're talking about. We let listeners submit questions sometimes. Some in our, of our uh, Patreon supporters. Yeah, our friend Ben Konowitz, who's a big fan, wanted to ask a question. 
And he asked, a lot of the recurring characters you played on Late Night with Conan had that sad behind the eyes demeanor. Was that a conscious choice every time to take a funny character a bit and add some sadness? Or was that just kind of happened on its own when you wrote the character or when you were performing it? That's a great question. And it was funny because I only really noticed that looking back, and I think some of it is rooted in my own, I, like most comedians, have struggled with mood stuff and, and yeah. uh, mm -hmm. you know, depression and... Uh, mm -hmm feeling inadequate and feel, beating myself up a lot. When I was younger, I don't think I would have believed that a lot of performers go through that kind of stuff. But yeah. um, right. now I realize most do. Right. In some ways, looking back, and I wasn't conscious of it when I was working on the characters, but I realized I think it was my way of working through some of that stuff, putting a brave face on yeah. my natural melancholy or my natural insecurities and things like that, and laughing your way through it. like. Like a lot of mm -hmm. my favorite bands, like the, the Replacements, for example, you know, would often write songs about trying to laugh through the bad stuff. Yeah. Or at least acknowledge the bad stuff and push on through. I used to even love to write sketches for Joel, our announcer, who would talk in this big announcer voice. But he, yes. would, he would be talking about a lot of really stuff he, that the character, not Joel himself, but uh, the, his persona on the show was yeah. struggling with. You know, I realized my wife is having an affair with my brother, you know, and it would, just be, and, um, you know, it would just be Joel saying, my father never showed me love or you know, yeah. like that. And, um, and it wasn't true of Joel's real life, but it was, it was always fun. There's always something I've, I've enjoyed about laughing away the bad stuff, you know, laugh. yeah. like a lot of my favorite comedies have that bittersweet. Like a show like Party Down or Cheers or Freaks. Yeah. You know, I look at Freaks and Geeks and, you know, shows where there's episodes that where you're laughing a lot and you all, and they can make you cry at the same time, like, or Taxi when Alex's dog is dying or, or whatever. Yeah. Mm -hmm. my, a lot of my favorite comedy has that, the darkness and the light mixed, because that's life. Right. Yeah. It brings a little realism to it. Yeah. yeah and I think that everyone relates to it. Everyone, uh, everyone experiences both happiness and sadness. I wrote a sketch once where uh, Conan and Andy and, and Max had thought bubbles of themselves and they were yelling at themselves, like Andy talking to himself going, you idiot, you know, what are you doing? That was a stupid thing to say. And I remember my sister had come to the show that day and she goes, you wrote that, didn't you? <laughs> I had not told her I had written it, but she, she, you know, she knows me as well as anyone. And uh, I was like, yeah. yeah, I did. How did I can't believe that. She goes, of course you did. That's totally what you do to yourself. <laughs> so, and uh, we all do, but it was just yeah. something that I think she knows I've worked through in my comedy. Um, so that was mm -hmm. a great question. Thank you. Do you have any moments from your career that are either a favorite moment where you're like, I can't believe this is what I get to do for my job every day, or a moment, maybe a not so favorite moment where you're like, I can't believe this is my job right now. I never try to take it for granted. One of the most surreal moments that always stuck out to me was I was dressed as Frankenstein for a Frankenstein Waste a Minute of Our Time sketch, yes. and I was getting up out of the makeup chair, and I, I completely forgot what I looked like. Because I, I was just, you know, I was looking out at the world. I wasn't looking at myself. And I had the bolts and the green hair and the flat head. And I had shoulder pads and I had platform shoes. So I was about seven feet tall because I'm 6'4 already. And I get up on platform shoes out of the makeup chair. And the legendary broadcaster, Walter Cronkite, was on the show that day. And when I got up out of the chair, he was walking into the makeup room. And I forgot what I looked like. And I, and I made eye contact with him. And I said, oh, it's such an honor to have you here, sir. And he was so 
like freaked out by this. I was like this seven foot Frankenstein coming towards him. And I just forgot what I looked like. So I wonder if I took a little time off his life. But in that same show, uh, Neil Young was a musical guest and I was such a, you know, he's one of my all time musical heroes. And uh, yeah. I was too afraid to go over and talk to him or anything. But when I was coming out of the makeup room at the end, he was coming off after his interview and I walked right into him too. And uh, he goes, Hey, that Frankenstein bit was funny, man. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, I can die now. I just met Neil Young. And um, I, I was kind of avoiding him the whole time before the show because I was too nervous that he, yeah. but he was, uh, he was so, so nice. It's nice when you, you know, when your hero turns out to be a nice right. down to earth person, just saying something nice like that. But there were all kinds of uh, moments over the years. One of the more surreal things too, is when we were the slip nuts, we did these silly characters that sang about slipping on nuts and slipped on nuts. And we opened yeah. for the band Slipknot at the Continental Airlines Arena in New Jersey. Wow. We had to run out on stage in front of Slipknot's audience. Yeah. I'd never been, I'd been to arena shows, but I'd never been on stage at an arena. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And the lights come down and we come running out slipping on nuts. <laughs> <laughs> metal fans and we were so afraid that they were going to enjoy it or like laugh or something yeah. we wanted them to hate us so bad <laughs> that was the whole point and they luckily they hated us just as much as they wanted they were throwing their beer cups and giving us the finger and we're like oh <laughs> and the band was nice enough to let us do that also i'll always be yeah. grateful to them and i never knew what they thought of it until just recently someone sent me a john glazer who was one of the other Slipknots. Uh, sent me an article that Corey Taylor, I think is his name, the lead singer of Slipknot, yeah. had mentioned that and said that they really enjoyed it. And I was so relieved to hear that because all these years I was like, did they hate us too? Uh, right. <laughs> were, uh, was anyone in that arena on our side? <laughs> they luckily had a sense of humor about it. Themselves. That's awesome. That's cool. What advice do you have for people who are interested in getting into either writing or performing or late night, uh, anything like that? Well, you know, it. Uh, I wish there was one thing to tell people people to do like just go here do this take this class do that and but I've noticed there are so many different routes to doing it like I, I know people that uh, got into it through stand-up which I've never done sometimes people break into through Twitter these days you know through mm -hmm. just doing tweets or um, or they'll do videos on YouTube which wasn't around when I was starting out yeah. which is a very wonderfully democratic way to get your stuff out there I know there's a lot of stuff out there and it's hard to break through the clutter but mm -hmm. it's nice that someone can do a video that might catch on that you do in your kitchen. That's a wonderful thing. I fell into it through doing improv. I would say whatever route you want to take, one thing that, that I seem to have noticed among various people I've worked with who came from various different backgrounds is they all tended to be doing something they loved that felt right to them. Yeah. Um, like I said, if I tried doing stand-up, I think it would have looked forced. It would have looked like, eh, I don't think it's right for him. I think it, you get better faster when you do what you love and what feels right to you. There is a lot of luck involved and there's a lot of things like opportunities come up in ways you, you don't expect. There's a lot of randomness. If you're doing something as an end in itself, it's more likely to become a means to an end. Because mm -hmm. if you're if you're doing something that you really love along the way and enjoying it, then you, you've already kind of won. And then if something comes from that, that's even better. Right. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
Well, let's get to our featured film. Today we're discussing the 1965 comedy A Thousand Clowns. It was written by Herb Gardner and directed by Fred Coe. It stars Jason Coberts, Barbara Harris, and Barry Gordon. It won the Oscar for Best Actor in a Supporting Role in 1965. Uh, before we get into it, Susan, can you give us a quick breakdown of what's this movie about? Yeah, so this movie uh, really follows the story of Murray. So he's this guy, I think he's supposed to be middle-aged, or at least early middle-aged, but mm -hmm. um, a few months before the events of this movie, he quit his job writing for a children's show because he was just sick of kind of being in that, you know, typical work week schedule. He was worried about getting stuck in like this conventional rut. So he really wanted to break out of that. So he quit his job. But the problem is he is raising his nephew who goes by the name Nick at the beginning of the movie. Um, he's 12 years old and he was kind of left with Murray by Murray's sister um, about six or seven years before the, what happens in this movie takes place. So he's trying, he's sort of raising his nephew. His nephew's very mature. He talks like a little adult, but the school finds out about his living situations. They send child services in. So then Murray is suddenly faced with this crisis where he has to kind of decide to be a more conventional person and keep his nephew in his custody or, you know, keep living the life the way he has been and um, lose his nephew. So that's really the crux of the movie is him dealing with that choice of what do I do? What do I do with my life? Which I think is very relatable. I think that's a very relatable struggle for a lot of <laughs> absolutely especially people in any kind of entertainment industry so, yeah yeah and brian you chose this movie for us to watch why did you pick this one well i think it's a a really wonderful comedy that i hadn't heard about when i was growing up it was never on my radar and i saw it around the time i started doing comedy for the, i saw it for the first time around the time i started doing comedy and um i i really enjoyed it even back then but i've only my enjoyment of it and has an appreciation for it has grown over the years, partly because mm -hmm. I've met so many people in comedy who uh, in some ways remind me of Murray Burns, the Jason Robards character in the movie, yeah. who's as his brother played by Martin Balsam, who won the Oscar for the, the, the movie. Um, he says to Murray at one point and he says, I have the gift of surrender and you don't mm -hmm. have it. And I can yeah. see the, the the tragedy of it. Like I can see the heartache in it. And what it is is like that feeling where his brother knows how to play the game to a certain extent, you know, mm -hmm. right? And, yeah. And and conform enough that you can be successful and not because uh, there's a price to pay, you know, for not playing the game sometimes, right? Know, and not, totally. not conforming to society's rules, and we all know that. And um, Murray Burns is just incapable of going along with it, but he learns to he as you said he has to make a decision if he wants to keep his nephew in his life he has to make certain compromises right and, uh, i think in a lot of ways too the movie even though it's before the real flowering of the hippie movement and everything mm -hmm. there's a certain element of dropping out of society or uh, yeah. the beat generation thing i think is in there too of just yeah. rejecting what you grew up having society tell you you're supposed to want in life you're supposed to want to have you know, a certain kind of job and a certain kind of uh, stability in your life. And, mm -hmm. and um, Murray would rather wander the city and, and go up to the Statue of Liberty and, yeah. and instead of having a regular job that was that's stifling. Like he says in the, at one point, he says, I got to know what day it is. Yeah. I have to know. I have to, he said, I don't want to be one of the nice dead people, you know. Right. And, exactly. and uh, I think that some of my favorite comedians and comedy writers that I've known over the years, they're uh, 
I think in sometimes they can be their own worst enemies and I, mm. and I love them just as much knowing that, but I also feel for them because I, I, to a certain extent have the gift of surrender in some ways, but in other ways, I also have always been a little bit quietly rebellious in a polite, yeah. in a polite repressed way. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm not as much of a nonconformist, but I also see the appeal of, of that, yeah. that choice of just, tossing things aside and just mm -hmm. absolutely i mean this is fascinating this is a fascinating movie it came out in 65, 65 yeah. it's over six years old or almost six years old and this character is very relatable yeah i mean especially with what's going on in the world right now with people not wanting to go back to jobs that they don't find fulfilling mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot mm -hmm. going on and you know this character is sort of uh i could I could see him being very relatable to a lot of people today, and he's he's very entertaining to watch. Yeah, it's really fun. Um, he's he's this really carefree character, <laughs> but he does care about his nephew. And as soon as I don't know, by twenty minutes or thirty minutes in the movie, you know, child uh, protective services shows up to start questioning whether they need to take Nick out of out of this home. And Murray he manipulates <laughs> the two characters to work against each other ends up falling in love with the yeah, uh, female it's psychiatrist. Uh, it, it's... But Nick manipulates, the kid manipulates them too. Oh, they work uh, yeah. together totally. to just totally They're... send these two caseworkers into like such a, a state of confusion. Yeah. <laughs> it's so entertaining and he's so quick-witted. He's yeah. so fast um, at, you know, his little one-liners and they're so witty. It is hard. He is a tragic character because he is, you know, he's so into himself and so anti-society you know, that he endangers his family. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting too, because um, Barbara Harris, you know, who, who I, I know she's fairly well known as an actress. I always thought was very underrated and is, is very wonderful in this. And she's great. She's another person who met very briefly when she came to a show in Chicago once and she's very shy and she's very oh, really? quiet. And I remember reading in the book, something wonderful right away that she was too shy to speak for several of her first improv workshops. And then wow. she developed, she kind of came out and blossomed, but she was painfully shy. And when I was growing up, it never occurred to me that performers could be shy or introverted. Yeah. Um, now I know better, you know. Right. <laughs> I always thought, well, they must all be extroverts. You know? Right. <laughs> and she, so she was another one who um, has such a very unique uh, presence. I can't think of too many actors that have that Barbara Harris, that, some yeah. might call it quirkiness, but it's it's just a very unique quality she has. And Jason Robards, yeah. I think, is one of the great film actors. You know, I know he won an Oscar for All the President's Men playing Ben Bradley and everything, but he's he's one of those guys who's always just money in the bank and is always yeah. very real. And Tom Selleck actually uh, loved the movie so much that he he did a Broadway play where he played Murray Burns um, oh, cool. years later. And I thought, oh, that's so nice. Tom Selleck, not someone I would immediately think of as no. someone who Absolutely. that movie, but... He did. He loved it and um, wow. wanted to do it on stage. And I love surprises like that, finding out people who love a movie that you wouldn't think necessarily would be their cup of tea, you know? Yeah. That's interesting. I also love, I think the directing is super interesting in this film too. At the beginning of the film, you know, they, they're playing the marching mm -hmm. band music as all these guys are going mm -hmm. off to work and they're talking about how you don't want to be one of those people. And then as soon as you know, you focus on the other characters, it's, it turns to, to jazz music, you know, to something a little more free form. 
And throughout the film, um, I think the music really sets the tone for each scene. I think it's really fascinating to watch it, even you know when they're trying to do like the circus music as they're going and looking at all the sights, or the, the romantic music when they're uh, riding on the bicycle mm-hmm. with uh, Murray and Sandy. It's really well done. It is, yeah. and I, I I don't know what other movies Red Co directed. I should look that up because uh, yeah, it, it's. Um... It's a very unique movie that's of its time, but also, as you said, there's so much to relate to it. Yeah. I like those movies that are of their time, but also um, seem relatable years later. Like the Marx Brothers movies, as even though they're old, old movies, I think they'll always appeal to the young, partly yeah. because of the, the Marx Brothers' refusal to take authority seriously. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> even when they're the authority figures in the movie. Right. <laughs> and I think that's something that young people always connect with and enjoy. Yeah. Like just the authority figure that needs to be taken down a peg or. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you guys have a favorite scene in the film? I love the scene where the caseworkers first show up, but I also like there, there's a time when Mr. Amundsen comes back later mm. and he's like, oh, you know, she didn't she didn't show up to the other case and he's very worried and it's almost like he's turning to murray for advice now which is so weird because he was so buttoned up and like you are below me like you have no idea what you're doing now he's like hey murray like where's sandra i don't know where she is and just such a good turn for that character right yeah that's a great scene and i yeah one scene that always stands out for me and it's kind of a heartbreaking scene but where um nick is standing up to chuckles yes and murray that character and murray is trying to smooth things over because he Mm -hmm. wants nick to stay with him and he knows he'll lose him if he loses this job and murray for the first time is compromising what he wants and nick wants murray to tell chuckles off yeah and he can't yeah and that's such a beautifully acted scene and nick who'd been telling Murray to be the responsible one the whole time, you know, just getting him to, um, so that, that choice he makes out of love, you know, for Mm -hmm. his nephew, because like he says, because your routines give me prolonged laughter. Yeah. And um, yeah, that's a very good line. So good. And that chuckles character makes me so uncomfortable. (laughs) I I think me too. And I think it, it, he's such a, a perfect example of that incredible needy performer who yes and you say like you said neediness it's even though we can all be very needy i know i can like it it's it makes people uncomfortable when you see yeah Yeah. (laughs) it's naked neediness like that yeah uh, yeah nobody wants to be around that oh these kids they're gonna kill you you know and you can tell he's just been dying in front of these audiences of kids who don't think he's funny and uh, yeah it's very thought-provoking in a sense too like where you think about what what choices are you willing to make mm-hmm. for things that are more important to you than than what feels like your integrity at the, at the yeah. moment? Right. We all make compromises in life, and um, mm-hmm. there it's just interesting to see someone who who finally comes to a point where he he's willing to make certain compromises for something that becomes more important, like love of yeah. nephew or love of Sandra or whatever. It's so well written, and the dialogue is so witty and quick and and smart and um, very original. I don't, I can't think of yeah. any, like just the fact that he answers the phone and says, "Hello, is this someone with good news or money?" Yep. No, goodbye. <laughs> and then, I've never seen anything like that in a movie. Yeah, I just uh, so it's very original and fresh. I think, and it holds up. 
Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I love the scene where Murray's on the stairs. He'd just gone and applied for all those jobs mm -hmm. and had all the interviews. And, you know, he's talking about how he was, you know, just standing on corners apologizing to people. And a lot of people were just accepting it. Yeah. And then that's his way of apologizing to Sandra for not actually taking any of the jobs. Uh, I thought that was such a beautiful scene of like this deeply flawed character who doesn't want to give in and he's, you know, sacrificing his relationship for it just because he's the way he is. Mm -hmm. I thought that was such an interesting scene. That scene gave Sandra a little more depth too, because you see yeah. her be like, no, this, what you're doing is not okay. I can't put up with it. Like I can't, exactly. I can't compromise my own, you know, things for, to put up with you just, you know, totally disregarding any responsibility. <laughs> right. it's, it's very real and it's very well, well, played, yeah. well written. And I totally agree. One last question on the movie. And mm -hmm. it's, is the ending a happy ending or not? I think it's both. I mean, it is a little sad to see Murray not get to be this totally free-spirited guy anymore, but, you know, he gets things in exchange. He gets to keep his nephew, who otherwise, you know, who knows what would happen to him. He gets Sandra, who, mm -hmm. you know, at first I wasn't sure if he actually wanted to be with her or not, but then obviously he does because he makes this big compromise. So I think it's, I mean, I think it's very realistic. It's, you know, a big compromise, but. Brian. I totally agree. I think it's a it's bittersweet, but it I think of it as a happy ending. And yeah, and it's interesting. And when he's like running for the bus, I remember I used to have that film, and there was a few months where I was uh, commuting in from the su suburbs in Chicago when I first got a job at the agency, and I saw, and to this day, when I see people running for a train, or running for a bus, or running for anything, I I always there's still I often think of that scene, you know, yeah, and how oh there's times i run for the bus or the train and it's all those choices we make in life yeah sometimes you just have to run for the bus or the train and sometimes you have yeah. to join the you have to join the rat race a little bit yeah uh, for yeah. the the things that are important to you and um mm -hmm. i think that that's uh it's i think of it as a bittersweet but primarily happy ending excellent perfect We like to finish up our show today with a game that we're calling Late Night, Guess It Right. We're going to see how well both of you know famous television hosts of late night shows. Brian, you're going to be teaming up with Susan. So here are the rules. I've given each of you a list of well-known late night TV hosts. You will take turns describing the host and their show to each other as quickly as you can, but you cannot use their name or the TV show's name. Okay. Okay. You will have two minutes to get your partner to guess as many as possible. If you get seven right, Brian will win our prize. And Susan, what's our prize? Um, our prize is a Life in the Credits shirt that we will send you. Yeah, we're well, going to win. <laughs> I, I have confidence in us. <laughs> I love the confidence. Okay, and then now, uh, Susan, you're going to give clues first, right? Okay, sure, yeah. Okay, fantastic. Brian, are you ready? Yes, thank you. Susan? All right. All right, now I'm going to start the time as soon as you give the first clue. Okay. okay? Whenever you're ready. All right. Uh, this woman was, I believe, a correspondent on The Daily Show. She now has her own show. Anthony? Yep. Correct. No, one point. Go ahead, Brian. Uh, okay. I, I used to uh, work with him, uh, red hair like me. Conan. Conan O'Brien. <laughs> All right. Um, you currently work for this guy. Colbert. Yeah. Correct. <laughs> uh, uh, host of The Tonight Show for most of its run. Um, uh, Ed McMahon was his sidekick. Uh, Johnny Carson? Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. correct. Four points. All right. Um, this guy's a classic late night host. He's from Indiana. David Letterman. Yep. Five <laughs> points. Uh, this is the current host, uh, or he took over for um, John Stewart, but he's from South Africa. Oh, uh, Trevor Noah. Correct. Six points. All right. Um, this guy's from the UK, and he hosts a show that's on HBO. It's a news show, uh, but it's like, what? Uh, yep. Yeah. Yep. Seven points. Keep going. Um, this uh, host was uh, from Scotland, uh, but hosted. Craig Ferguson. Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, all right. This is another pretty classic late night host. He's known for his cars. He's known for his chin. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, nine. <laughs> okay. Uh, this is a uh, host, uh, African American host who uh, was known for high energy, uh, getting the crowd pumped up. Uh, had Bill Clinton play saxophone on his show. Yes. Um, uh, Thirty seconds. I'm spacing out. You can pass. Pass. Okay. Um, there's uh, here's another one. Um, uh, oh, the uh, host. Best known host of The Daily Show. Uh, John Stewart. Yeah. Yep. All right. Um, this is, I believe, the. I think you spelled his name wrong, but he's a big part of the Real Housewives franchise. He hosts a late night talk show. Is that who you, okay. Um, oh, uh, we'll do a different one. Um, so this one, I believe five seconds. the theater you work in is named after this host because he's very, one of the original late night, oh, ho- late night. Yep. Yeah. Time. Great right. job. Andy Cohen is. Oh, the, of course. Yeah. Yeah. He's kind of not in the same. What's the one I didn't get? Uh, Arsenio Hall. Duh. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> that was, uh, yeah it, it was interesting. That was such. They just did a history of late night on CNN, and I. Yeah. Well, great job, Ryan. You guys killed it. We did it. We only missed two. Yeah, you guys did fantastic. Yeah. You got like, I don't know, like uh, 12 right or something. Yeah. So good job. Thanks. Thanks. That was fun. Brian, before we let you go, would you like to plug anything? There's a new podcast of The Late Show with Stephen Colbert out now. Uh, if people want to check it out, they uh, it's basically an audio version of the show. Oh, cool. So if people aren't aware of that, that's a new way to experience the show. Uh, so that's fun. And um, yeah, just thanks. Thanks to anybody who's watching the show. And thanks to anybody who watched the stuff with Conan or Steven over the years, um, where we, we'd uh, be lost without you. So thanks. <laughs> yeah, well, thanks for being on our show. Yeah, thank you so much. <laughs> this was really fun. It was a pleasure. And it was wonderful to meet you both. Thank you. Life in the Credits is hosted and produced by me, Susan Swarner, And me, Ben Bloom. It's executive produced by Michelle Levin. The music is written and performed by Steve Trowbridge. You can hear more of Steve's music at TrowbridgeSongs.com. The show logo is created by Melissa Durkin. If you'd like to support Life in the Credits and get access to exclusive perks, you can do so at Patreon.com. If you'd like to follow or get a hold of us, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Life in the Credits or shoot us an email at LifeInTheCredits at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Hey, that Frankenstein bit was funny, man. (laughs) (laughs) Ha, 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 ha.